You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Chris Williams, founder and CEO of Pocket Watch. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's really good to be here, James. Well, I thought we'd start off by kind of traveling back in time. You were one of the first 100 employees at Yahoo. I'm curious just to hear you know, what attracted you to the digital media space. How was that early experience? Sure. That's a great question. I have always been fascinated by media. I'm kind of a media junkie, and that included in my youth computers and early adoption over the internet. I was on 300 baud modems and, you know, hacking MCI long distance cards and all sorts of stuff when I was uh, in my early teens. And I, I really loved that convergence. And so shortly after college, as the internet was sort of becoming a thing, you know, not a super big thing, but a thing that I was aware of, I was such an early adopter, that I really had said, you know what, even though I had graduated with a degree in broadcast and film, and, you know, was pursuing some aspects of that, that the internet just represented this huge opportunity for me. So I give myself a lot of credit for having identified the internet as a thing that was going to be really big that I wanted to be a part of, and this back in 1996. But getting to Yahoo was complete luck. You know, at that time, there was literally... I was based in New York. I wasn't out in the Valley. There was literally like 10 companies that even were playing on the internet, ranging from like New York Times Digital to Starwave, uh, Hotwired, right? And Yahoo was about to open up their New York offices. And so I had made this decision. I started interviewing and I got a little lucky where the last interview I had was Yahoo. And at this time, there were a lot of companies in this space, Yahoo, Excite, Lycos, that were sort of neck and neck and sort of tied for sort of search dominance, if you will, or portal dominance. They offered me the job. I actually, frankly, I liked Excite better and I had had a good interview there, but they they hadn't gotten around to offer me a job. They said they would. And um, so I was really, really lucky. I got the opportunity to get on that rocket ship as one of the first hundred employees when I started to kind of put the timing and perspective when I called my dad to tell him that I was uh, so excited to be taking this fabulous job at Yahoo. He was he literally said to me, son, I am so proud of you. I love that drink. Uh, <laughs> and that's how early it was. My oh, email <laughs> was chris at yahoo.com. Uh-huh. And I really hit the ground running. I was you know one of the first 100. I was the second employee, third employee-ish in New York. A bunch of us started at the same time. And, um, you know, got to see that massive growth. And it really gave me a taste for entrepreneurship. It gave me a taste for these types of rocket ships and companies that were at the convergence of digital and traditional. And I 
you know, I loved everything about it. Yeah. What a great turn of fate. What was your original mandate during your time at Yahoo? I was really um, overseeing kind of sell-side business development on the East Coast, uh, initially as a loan contributor, and then ultimately with a pretty large team running the gambit of e-commerce type partnerships, people like Barnes & Noble uh, or uh, Sports Authority, and then even finance. So everyone who's ever done a, a stock quote search on Yahoo, and they see there's these buttons uh, at the top of that quote that uh, have different companies in them that, you know, do stock trading. I was the first guy to do deals around that, which were significant. It was like 10 million a year. And uh, yeah, so it was really sort of that sell side, bringing in partners. And, uh, you know, we were we were pretty hot. And did you have prior sales and business development experience? I, I'm wondering, you know, it's so nascent. As you said, there's 10 companies doing stuff on the internet. A lot of people may not have heard of Yahoo. How do you convince these traditional brands to think about, oh, we got to embrace online and, and invest in digital ad spending? Yeah, I would say the answer is no, I didn't. And the irony is, is that like six months after I started at Yahoo, there's no way I get hired at Yahoo, <laughs> right? I mean, it was like, you know, some, you know, again, timing is, it can be everything. You know, I had always had a knack for persuasion, so fit in quite well. And it was really powerful. It was a really powerful message. I mean, this was a very new thing. We were largely at the very early stages selling search, you know, and that the idea that obviously Google has now taken to, you know, insane heights of these very directed, intentional searches are just the most valuable direct marketing tool of all time. I remember, you know, like literally selling words like jobs, and travel and, you know, things like that, that were pretty immensely powerful. And at a certain point, it really became bidding wars for that real estate. In late 2006, you leave Yahoo and you founded FanLib, a platform for users to write, share, and review fan fiction stories. What inspired you to start the business? You know, I've always been fascinated by fan fiction. And I had a, a couple missteps at FanLib and we pivoted fairly quickly into something called Take 180. But the, the notion that there were these subcultures that actually had massive scale, fan fiction being one of them, was just really compelling to me. You know, anime is another one that it was always like, why hasn't this bubbled into the mainstream? You know, this activity that millions of people enjoy across all different ages, why hasn't this bubbled at all into the mainstream? And so we, we did approach it in a way that was like, how do we do that? And we created sort of a tech, a platform for how people could tell these sort of fan fiction-esque stories together and in massive groups through this system. And, you know, I had a couple missteps. I learned quickly that the natives of fan fiction were not at all pleased to have a company come in and try and organize it in a fashion that would make it more popular and more commercial. And they kind of rallied against me a little bit in the company. Um, because this was kind of thought of as a grassroots effort and they didn't yeah, want it to be yes. overly commercial. I, I, it, was, it was, you know, it's funny. It's a little bit of a tangent, but they, they definitely, one, there was this heightened sense of sort of legal action at that time by major corporations in entertainment and media for sending out cease and desist against fan fiction, which is kind of ludicrous today to think about that. But, you know, one or two cease and desist from some misguided smaller independents can go a long way to frighten a community. And that was sort of the, there was a high tension there. And I think they thought we were shining a spotlight on something that they 
would attract legal attention. And we were doing it very much in collaboration with big companies, but that was still, you know, I was very much made people nervous. Also, I used to liken it to like, you know, action sports, you know, before ESPN came in, you know, it's like... Before the X Games, right? right? It's like, right, so the purists you know, don't really want it to change. And I think we we faced a lot of those those challenges and ultimately pivoted into video for a variety of reasons. One, video was starting to boom and really felt like that was the right path. So we kind of took that technology and readapted it into something that we call participatory entertainment, where we'd have audiences contribute things, anything from an idea to a line of dialogue, to a costume idea, to something that would manifest itself in this professionally produced series that we were creating. And that became Take 180, which was ultimately acquired by the Walt Disney Company. Yeah. So more of a collaborative creative process. Yes. Had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? Yeah, I I always felt entrepreneurial. And I think Yahoo really brought that out in me, like just that taste for something at an early stage. Uh, and how exciting that can be and how contributions really move the needle. And that really excited me. And, you know, I, 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 after Yahoo, to a certain extent, I felt forced to be an entrepreneur because all of my mentors, I was in my early 20s when I started at Yahoo, right? So all my mentors who, uh, who I loved at, at Yahoo literally retired after Yahoo. Like they bought sports teams and airplanes and golf courses. They didn't go on to start their next thing or go to a big company where I could kind of sort of follow in their footsteps. And so I felt a little bit like I had this entrepreneurial energy. I might not have been ready to actually like full on be an entrepreneur, but I was like, whoever is right. Right. I'm like, I'm just going to do it. Right. And look, I was afforded the opportunity to take that chance by my experience at Yahoo because it was also fairly financially rewarding, not like it was for my mentors, but enough that I could take some risk. What was the hardest part of being a first time founder? Wow. You really learn in trial by fire. I think, you know, I think about today and I think about my experience and skill set for being an entrepreneur and just how drastically different it was than at that time where I'm really, to a certain extent, making it up as I go along and made a lot of mistakes in the process. And I think, you know, I've never felt more prepared than I did for Pocket Watch. And I'm sure if I do it again, like I'll, I'll feel the same way. And I'll look back at the pocket watch version of myself and have some criticisms. But I do feel, you know, by throwing myself into it, by learning those lessons, you know, fairly cheaply, not entirely free, but fairly cheaply, that it just has prepared me. Everything I've done has prepared me for sort of this moment. So as you alluded to, FanLib was acquired by Disney in 2008, about two years in, became Take 180, which was part of Disney Interactive. Yes. How did that deal come about? That's a great question. We actually, as we were making the pivot, we had raised some venture capital around FanLib. And we, we, as we were making this pivot into Take 180, we believed that we to really blow it out, we needed a partner, one that really had actually marketing and promotional muscle. And so we started taking some early meetings uh, as this was pretty early in the development stages. And Disney was one of those meetings. And I'll never forget because there was interest, but not enough interest to like move the ball along. And at a certain point, and you never know how these things happen, and I kind of speculate about them, but we had been using the words participatory entertainment. And what, what I believe happened that there was some meeting between our 
guy at Disney, our contact, who was a guy named Marty Yudkovitz, great entrepreneurial media executive, and like Bob and some others there, where the word like participatory entertainment came up and suddenly, you know, Marty's like, I know someone, right? And so I get that call probably three months, four months after, like, hey, remember that thing you came in and talked about? What's going on with it? So I kind of gave him a quick update. And he's like, look, we're starting something here called the Innovation Investment Committee, where we're not taking equity investments, but we are investing in projects that we think that long-term, they need incubation, but that long-term they can provide a lot of value to the business units. Uh, would you mind coming in and, and pitching Bob? And I was like, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be <laughs> like, a surreal that's moment. That's a great opportunity. And I must say, if I look back at every meeting I've had in my entire life, that was my best meeting ever. And I give a lot of credit to Bob because he puts you in a position to be your best. Like I would just, you know, I was so nervous beforehand, but within minutes, I was completely relaxed, confident and comfortable. And even though there was an audience of another 12 executives in the room, like he sits you down right next to him, it's very sort of personalized. And I I really gave my best meaning ever and things moved along from there where they started making investments in sort of Take 180 as a project. And then, of course, I get the call like, you know, six months later, we're getting pretty far along. We've had a couple more meetings with Bob and other people. And I get the call that says, hey, that Innovation Investment Committee is now like the Emerging Company Investment Committee, right? <laughs> or, or Acquisition Committee. And would you consider it? And at that time, this was now probably 2000, early 2008. The internet felt a little frothy in terms of the activity since Fox's acquisition of MySpace in 2005, it really catapulted. And I was like, you know, this is probably a decent time. And Disney's the greatest media company in the world. So at that moment in time, it felt like the right thing to do. We proceeded uh, with the acquisition. It closed in, I believe, late September, early October of 2008. And then two weeks later, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns went out of business and the world economy collapsed. And it was all cash, and I had a lot of happy investors. <laughs> Thank God for good timing again. That's right. Bob really stands out as one of the true media luminaries of this generation. What do you think it is about him that makes him so unique and, you know, over his tenure at Disney has resulted in the company being so successful? Well, one, I do think he he genuinely has a drive to innovate. That doesn't always make its way down into the middle layer, but I, I think there is a genuine desire to disrupt himself and disrupt the company from within. In large part, we used to articulate the acquisition of Take 180 by Disney was not about necessarily Take 180. It was about putting insurgents inside the company. And they would even sometimes like tell us we were insurgents. And, and I think that is really smart to bring that type of blood in. And then I think he's just, you know, been remarkable at balancing the short-term needs of a public company, quarterly reporting and such, with long-term planning. And that ranges from everything to the parks in China, to cruise ships, to now obviously Disney Plus. And, and I think it. some people say it's too late, and I say it's perfect timing. I believe his timing is perfect. I agree. And something like Disney Plus doesn't happen overnight, especially if you're Disney. It takes years of planning, right? And you're right to kind of keep that delicate balance of keeping the street happy, but also making sure that you're investing in and planning for the future. Is the other critical. thing I would add is that when you look back at all the greatest CEOs of Disney, and there's not a lot, there's really three, and that's Disney, Walt Disney, Michael Eisner, and Bob Iger, they all had a very strong left brain, right brain balance. 
And it's not that Bob is the creative guy, but Bob can manage creative people as good as anybody in the world. And he has a creative gut that he believes in. And I think that's so critical to success. So it doesn't mean he has to be the creative guy. It means that when he sees something, he can go, yeah, that's good. And that's commercial. Let's double down, right? I don't think you can operate without that as a true media company CEO. And Disney, more than anyone, has used the machine to create revenue opportunities from IP, right? I mean, that's why the Marvel acquisition made sense, the Lucasfilm acquisition made sense, why you know Pixar has done tremendously well. We're going to see that again now with Fox. They can take IP, and whether it's cruise lines, theme parks, consumer products, create throughput and revenue opportunities unlike anybody else. I would say that certainly all that I learned at Disney that I am doing here, and I sometimes will look at it as a mini Disney with a different pool of IP that we're focused on, which is digital first and based on YouTube creators, but that that franchise building experience and, and acumen and, and skill sets and all those things are, you know, a blueprint for any media company. And, and I think starting from scratch, having come from Disney and having Albie Hecht, my incredible chief content officer who, you know, was a legend at Nickelodeon um, and us bringing to the table these, these sort of franchise approach to everything that we learned from those companies, you know, has the, been the key to our success. So I'm very excited to hear more about the Pocket Watch story. But before we get there, I want to kind of stay on the theme of Disney. You spent three, three and a half years there I mean, after the acquisition. five out of ten, if you <laughs> look at both acquisitions. Sure, sure. But shortly after Take 180, right, you, you go on to oversee Take 180 as GM and then later uh, general manager of Disney Online Originals. Yeah. What was your experience like working inside the Mouse House the first time? You know, Disney's the greatest media company in the world. It's a hard place to work as an innovator. But having said that, I kind of enjoyed some of the challenges in a pretty great way. And that's, you know, I call them kind of the pillars of no uh, within big media companies broadly, Disney especially. And that's, frankly, legal, corporate brand and PR, right? And those are these are the main sources of people whose job it is to protect what exists versed really incubate and invest in what's new. And so much of the the friction in doing new things comes with conflict with those groups. Uh, and I kind of enjoyed that. I'm, I'm good at it and I, I liked doing it. And, you know, I had a great experience there. I learned so much about how a big company, particularly a media and entertainment company, operates that has just made me so much better as both an entrepreneur and an executive in my career. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about politics. You learn a lot about just how it all works. I can imagine. And during your first stint there, uh, you became an early investor in Maker Studios, sure. later joined the company full time as the chief audience officer. At that time, around 2012, there were obviously a number of these creator collectives, YouTube multi-channel networks popping up. What made Maker unique and what inspired you to join? I would start with I had had a very early prior relationship, right? So I had met Danny Zappin and Lisa um, Donovan, the original founders of Maker, very early on pre-Maker. And actually in the summer of 2008, I actually met them. And I will never forget this moment where we had been acquired by Disney, and this is maybe now six months later, and we were sort of beta launching the first incarnation of the Take 180 website, which had these video series on them. And we had paid... Lisa, 
and Danny, who at that point, Lisa had a top 10 YouTube channel called Lisa Nova, to do a promotional video to get us a little audience for the website as we were in this beta. And I remember sitting, I was at Disney Orientation at the time, and the video launches. And by the end of the day, it's the number two video on all of YouTube around the world with over a million views. And I'm going, I can't believe I just built a website for video. Like, I, I, like, I need to pivot fast, right, to YouTube, because clearly this is where video consumption is going to happen. Uh, and that just gave me a taste for everything YouTube at a really early stage. And then Maker really stood out, not only from the prior relationship, but because they had so much momentum and inertia. And I think those are just critical. So to me, that was the draw. So while I looked at Collective and, you know, and Machinima and others, like Maker really stood out to me as as just at that moment in time had really started uh, a spark for this momentum. Obviously, later there was conflict between Danny, the CEO of Maker, and the board. He was replaced by Inan, and there was you know lawsuit around those issues that followed. Fun times. Yeah. James, fun times. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> struggling challenges with any emerging company. Did that put strain on your relationship with Danny? How was it navigating some of those elements in the, the business? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, my loyalty at the end of the day was to Maker, was to the company and the employees and everything that we stood for. And I, at that time, felt like Danny was really threatening that and threatening potential positive outcomes for lots of people. And um, yeah, put a great strain on our relationship. We reconnected post uh, me leaving Maker and, you know, things got better. But, you know, I think if you asked him, he'd say he regrets all that. Yeah, I think definitely a learning experience uh, all the way around. Ultimately, a phenomenal outcome for everyone involved, right? Maker yeah. Studios is acquired by Disney for $500 million in cash, uh, $450 million earnout, kind of ends up in the 650 range. But another huge success story and, and one of the first largest acquisitions in the kind of YouTube-centric space at the time, which, of course, has expanded to all of social media at this point. What was it like returning to Disney and having kind of your second tour of duty? You know, it was a bit triumphant. There's no question about that. I felt very good about returning to Disney on those, under those circumstances where many of the things that I had pounded the table on, you know, were sort of embodied at Maker and here we go again. So, um, yeah, it felt really good. I also felt like I was in a really good position to do great things because I had relationships. I had an understanding of how Disney worked from little things like, frankly, VIP tour guides which at the parks, which go a long way to um, how to navigate the legal infrastructure to relationships with executives across uh, the media engines of, of the TV channels. You know, those things were really valuable to me. I think those people trusted me as well. And so, you know, I came in very optimistic. I didn't leave as optimistic, but I came in very optimistic. Why do you say that? Well, just because it, you know, over time, it's sort of, you know, the friction kind of wears on you. And I think we had not designed the earnout very well. Uh, and I don't think anyone can take blame for that. It's just how it worked out. And that the way it was constructed was not conducive to the growth of Maker as a new thing inside of Disney that could have thrived. It was more oriented towards kind of, you know, 
just bring it in fast. Yeah, I mean, maybe for the sake of clarity, the the earnout kind of had two parts of the structure. The first year was focused on top line revenue growth. I mean, both years were kind of focused on top line, and I think. But the second year was weighted much more towards profitability. From my I mean, understanding, it, frankly, it didn't it didn't really matter. Just that both those metrics were not the proper metrics. Mm. That that we had what we had conveyed to the management at Disney, including Bob, was a vision for sort of a maker 2.0 that was much more aligned with Disney's businesses in that it was around building branded channels and doing great content with this new class of creator to populate those channels. And that because top line and earnings were the only things being rewarded, there, there was not investment in making that pivot. And I thought, that was a pretty squandered opportunity. Yeah, that's too bad. And obviously, there were parts of Maker's business that maybe didn't fit as neatly into Absolutely. the Disney ideal, right? There was a very successful commercial business, which might have been in conflict with yeah. Disney's internal interests. So those types I of things I think when happen. you look at where they see the most, Disney sees the most success in acquisitions, it, it's pretty straightforward. I, sometimes I, I, I like to break down the media business really simply, like across five different things, right? You've got pipes, You've got platforms, and platforms really have to be open. Like I'm thinking about open platforms. You have branded channels, franchises, and talent, right? Disney only plays in two of these places, okay? They utilize all the other things. They're certainly using platforms. They're certainly using pipes and technology. They're certainly using talent. But branded channels and franchises is the Disney business. And you could even look at Disney Plus as just a new branded channel, right? And... I think that when you looked at the construction of the maker business, it was didn't align well with those things. Whereas Marvel and Pixar and Lucas, like they just align so well with what the Disney machine is built to exploit. It's tougher with acquisitions like maker or, although the vision we had for maker was more aligned that the what it was at that time was very different. Yeah, I think that's a great way to express it because I've often looked at it and obviously Disney has this terrific track record when it comes to media and IP-based acquisitions. The same cannot be said of its digital and interactive acquisitions and investments. For some reason, maybe it's just that DNA or the culture clash. They don't seem to be integrated and you're not getting the benefit of the full value of those properties. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're really good at what they do but they're not good at the things they don't do. Yeah, fair enough. So as we think about the streaming wars heating up and you've got all this competition for video-on-demand platforms, Disney Plus being chief among them in, in attention and consumer interest at this point, what do you see coming in the future? Who wins? You know, there's a lot of talk about Netflix versus sure. Disney Plus. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think about this a lot, obviously, um, and, and is how we're going to fit into all this too. I look at Netflix as basic cable for the world. To me... There's no, you don't compete with Netflix. They are literally basic cable. So everybody's going to have Netflix. And then it's about what else. And I think Disney has an incredible position to be a what else for hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, having, they don't have to, frankly, do that much. It's not that complicated at first, where literally... It's like clear as much of your library as you possibly can of the most valuable content in the world that now includes Fox's content. Do some tent poles around the biggest IP in the world that you own, Star Wars and Marvel being chief among them, and then make sure it works. 
And if you're Disney, you can afford to plunk down $2 billion for BAMTAC to make sure it works. And so I think if they check those three boxes, they're in really good shape. And then what the future holds for Disney Plus can be pretty remarkable in that they have all these assets from the parks to consumer products and all these other things that when you start to think about it more like a membership or a club that can really be powerful. And then I think, look, it's going to be, people are going to be fighting for those spots. But I also, I personally don't believe the primary driver of cord cutting is price. I think it's value. So I think people look at their cable box and they look at the channel guide and they go, I'm only watching four channels on here. Why am I paying for all the rest? And I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it is that it is the, it's the most broken user experience in media. And I think you know, and Bob was saying that, Iger was saying that when he put Lost and Desperate Housewives on iTunes. I mean, you know, this is a decade ago. And so I really feel like people's media spend per capita will continue to go up. It's just going to go up. And so the quantity of services that you can pay for and subscribe to, I don't think that's necessarily the limiting factor. I don't think people are going to be like, well, I can either watch Game of Thrones or I can watch the new Marvel show. They're not. If they want to watch Game of Thrones and they want to watch the Marvel show, they're going to get both services. You know, look at the HBO service and look at the, the Disney Plus service. So I think there's a lot of room there. And I think you're going to see a lot of success stories. But I think Netflix, basic cable for the world, in 10 years, who knows, could be a billion customers, you never know. And um, and I think Disney's a real player. I completely agree. I think consumers are going to end up paying about the same amount, but they're going to get more of what they want and less of what they don't. Yeah, That's what it comes value. down to. Yeah, They want value and a great user experience. I mean, you think about when Netflix launched, so much of their momentum was based on the fact that it was so easy to use. It was so good. Like the content wasn't necessarily the driver in that first couple of years. Like, yes, they had enough good content, uh, library content to make it work. But like, it was just the user experience was so much better. Now that's commodity, right? And that's, that's table, table stakes, stakes right? Yeah. I mean, that's totally table stakes. And so I, I just feel like that's a big part of why people canceled their cable subscriptions, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think Disney, I see Netflix winning here because it's the future of television. Disney is fundamentally different, right? They have the strength of the characters and the fan community and the ability to bundle it in with the rest of their entertainment empire. People are absolutely going to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. HBO is going to be successful uh, because it's the destination for premium entertainment. And then I think it's smart for Disney, obviously, to now have majority control of Hulu. Comcast, NBCU is smart to stay in it. But the only losers here are the cable companies. Yeah. Well, and even they are not losers because they're the ones who are providing the internet access. They're not true losers until 5G. Correct. They've gotten into owning the pipe, right. as you say, rather than the, the platform of the distribution. And we but, don't need the pipe. But that's changing a bit. And we've seen, let's talk about kind of the other end of that spectrum, which is telcos and the cable companies, because we're seeing kind of this declining average revenue per user among telcos. Verizon, WatchGo90, AT&T made a big bet with full screens, SVOD service, not the media part of their business, but the actual subscription business. Both of those, to me, just didn't seem to offer the value or prove the business point to the end consumer. I'm skeptical of Quibi for the same reason. What is your take on that that side of the value chain? I'm less skeptical than than you are on Quibi. I, I would say full screen and go 90, you know, it's hard to generate a paying subscriber. I'll just start there. I mean, go 90, I think actually was ad supported. Uh, parts of it were ad supported. I'm, I'm not even sure how exactly how it worked, but it, it's, it's hard to get a customer. Now, 
if you if you if Jeffrey Katzenberg sat in front of me and said, I want to launch a Netflix competitor or I want to launch a service with great original content and I need a billion dollars, that's kind of a safe bet. Like it's safer than most to the extent that the man has a very proven track record for both great creative and commercial creative. And, you know, all the things around that it's mobile first and it's quick bites, to me, that's a little bit of static and noise. Like at the end of the day, you know, okay, I mean, like 10 minutes, whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, I, I have a theory. My theory around the 10 minutes, <laughs> I'm sure they would deny this till their death, is that they want to work with the greatest creators in the world, right? People like Spielberg or J.J. Abrams or whomever, right? Those people have these massive deals with existing studios. Those deals usually exempt short-form content, and so I feel like it's a way to, to slip under the radar through the exclusivities of the big studio deals with the big creators. And if you're Katzenberg, it looks, to me, it looks genius. <laughs> it's a clever uh, workaround. And, uh, right. And yeah. so you get access to all these amazing creators that you might not necessarily have access to uh, if you were doing long form. And that's, you know, what's 10 minutes? I mean, it's an act, right? I mean, it's like, so basically it's not as unusual a structure as it would appear to be. And I don't know, I kind of feel like we'll see. And, you know, it's a high bar to generate subscribers. But if I was going to bet on someone, Katzenberg looks like a good bet. Yeah. And it's too too early to call. So and we'll he's see. put together a great team. To yeah. boot. So let's talk about the Pocket Watch story. You founded the business in 2017 as a kid-centric entertainment studio that's now creating global franchises from YouTube stars and characters that kids love. Where did the inspiration come from? both at home and in data. So it started literally as being a dad, right? I have two kids, they're now 11 and 14. You know, at that time, and they were a little younger, I would come home from work. I would, you know, walk into my family room with my beautiful big screen TV and, you know, sit down and they would lay down on the floor and fire up their iPhones to watch YouTube videos, right? So I, I literally saw this in my house. And then having been at Maker and Disney, I really got to see that bear out in the data. And I saw that literally kids' television from a ratings perspective was off a cliff. Uh, I believe Disney Channel's ratings are down 75% since 2010. That's three quarters of the audience is gone. And that really corresponded to a massive surge in kids and family audiences on YouTube. And the thesis was that there are now these incredibly popular characters and stars on YouTube that that is the only place they exist. And kids especially want more of what they love. And I was like, I want to bring kids more of what they love from these stars and characters in the form of all the things I learned about at Disney, things like consumer products and games and TV shows and, you know, books and tours and all these other things because kids want what they love and parents like to give kids what they love. So it just looked like an incredible opportunity at that time where no, where we, we had skirted around it a little bit at Maker and others certainly skirted around it and did a little experiments, but like no one went like full force into that particular category and that particular genre of kids and family and did it in such a way that was super focused, right? So for me, it wasn't, I wanted to build a portfolio of IP, not a network of channels. So, you know, start with five, 
don't start with 50 or 500 or 50,000. As you've touched on, the kid space is so unique in that it's already hugely popular on YouTube, right? You look at the top creators and excluding music content, right? Many of them are kids or family-centric content, one of which Ryan's Toys Reviews you represent and several others, of course. But um, not only that, you, you alluded to the fact that kids are growing up now on the internet, not on television like our generation and those before it. And so the viewing habits are completely different. We talked about this on a recent episode of the podcast with our mutual friend, Ben Grubbs from Next10, who was running YouTube Kids in APAC. And he talks about how kids will watch the same video over and over again. They'll just put it on loop or repeat because they love those characters, they love those brands. And oftentimes that's what's driving buying habits when you think about the parents' decisions as well. Cannot argue with that. And I, you know, by the way, that is not something new. Uh, You know, if you ask most parents of little boys, you know, like how many times they've seen Cars, right? I mean, you know, the Disney can stand on the fact that kids will watch these movies over and over again. Yeah, and we felt like there was just, there's something about daily, fresh engagement with fans and with audiences that is fairly unique to YouTube that I actually propped in that thesis would make it even a more powerful platform for growing franchise than feature films or, you know, TV or, you know, streaming services, which can't do it. The binging model to me just really kind of makes it almost impossible, which is why Netflix has never really had a franchise uh, and how I would define a franchise. And so I really felt like that was just an incredible opportunity where, where the new franchises could could be born and flourish with a center of gravity on YouTube. In addition to YouTube, which is paramount, what are the other primary viewing destinations or entertainment destinations for kids today? We've got you know gaming with Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite. You've got um, you know other kind of live experiences. Where do you see kids spending time? I, I do think mobile is driving a majority of this change for many reasons. You know, one of the stats that I love is Common Sense Media does a kids' media consumption study. They did it in 2011, updated in in 2013, and again in 17. In 2011, less than 3% of kids under 8 possessed their own mobile device. And I don't mean their parents, I don't mean their siblings, like their own, so less than 3%. By 2017, it was 45. And so that the control and, and possession of these devices by you know, kids. It's those places where kids are consuming entertainment. So that obviously means mobile gaming, you know, I mean, it's it's apps, it's video through YouTube primarily. They're on Netflix, they're on some other platforms, they're consuming in other places. Netflix probably has sort of half the consumption around kids' content that something like YouTube does, but um, 60% of all Netflix subscribers in a given month will access kids' content on Netflix. So it's a big, growing, flourishing area, particularly on tablets and, and mobile phones. What are some of the challenges that you see in the kids' space? We hear a lot about brand safety, right, and, sure. and uh, parental controls. Is that the primary concern? What are the other things that you think about in the kids' world? Yeah, that's a big one. I think it starts for us with the way we choose our creator partners. So we're only partnered with, well, we're partnered with seven, but I haven't announced a couple of them. You know, that we run through a very important process ahead of, engaging with creators that, you know, not only looks at their content, whether that's sort of kid safe and brand friendly, which obviously that's, that's a paramount importance, but also, you know, what was the birth of the channel and the business? Did, did it come from the kids? 
right? Were the kids the inspiration? That's super important. Ryan, as an example, has an insatiable appetite to play and make videos. That is super important to us. Do they share our values and want to do right by kids, starting with their own, right? These are things that we go very deep in. We look at, it's super important. And I wouldn't necessarily characterize things as, as risks, right? But there's always a lot of media attention paid to our kids, which there should be. I think there's a little bit, you know, the, the media tends to like to only point at the bad things. They exist. I'm not going to debate the existence of some scary things on YouTube for kids and other other things like that, but they never point out the good things, right? And, and I think when we look at it, we look at it as this tool where it's actually inspiring kids to go do things that are good, right? Uh, we call it sometimes the perpetual cycle of play, which is this notion that, and every parent has seen this in their house, like a kid will watch some videos videos of other kids playing in, in various types of play. It could be challenges, could be science experiments, could be imaginative toy play, lots of different things, but they're watching a lot of that. And then they're typically inspired to go do those things. Mommy, can we go make slime? Can we go play this game? Can we go outside and do a challenge? And then they actually also want to record and share their version of that activity and that play. And we think this perpetual cycle of play is a really good thing. We need to do more ourselves and and encouraging our creators to sort of link those things better together and to do it in a way that's 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 more overt but you know you never see sort of the media talk about that right they only want to talk about momo or you know the bad stuff the video that gets through on youtube kids and that tends to mean we have some work to do with communicating it's not all bad. Yeah, a lot of positive elements of yeah. kids' media as well. Yeah. So your biggest property, as we've touched on, Ryan Toys Review, centers around the seven-year-old boy who has expanded his media empire from a YouTube channel with now 19 million subscribers to a TV show on Nickelodeon, animated digital series, mobile app, and an extremely successful toy line sold in Walmart, Target, Amazon, you name it. So according to Forbes, all of this generated 22 million in 2018, making Ryan the highest paid online video creator of the year. Not bad for a seven-year-old. That's true. I, I will correct you on one thing. So that Forbes article covers the period of July 1st, 2017 to June 30th, 2018. None of the other things had launched yet. Wow. So that is pure YouTube. And that's part of the philosophy, right? The philosophy being, okay, little Ryan makes $22 million. That's good, right? But there's a bit of a delta between that $22 million. What's the value of SpongeBob or Mickey Mouse or Paw Patrol, right? And so we felt that that was part of the business side of the opportunity for us and the creator. We were really fortunate. Ryan and his family, one, had a creative ambition that led them down a road that, was, that made our job quicker. And that was that they created a universe around Ryan of other characters and worlds that in that he inhabits with them right so combo panda gus the gummy gator peck and you know there's all these great characters in that world and there's animated content there's you know live action and there's gaming and it's very broad based and i call this the franchise world buildings part of it and they came to us with much of that already built Right. For most creators, that's not what they do. And we tend to, for other creators, we, we, we partner with them to do that part too. You know, they really came to the table with this great 
platform already creatively. And we were able to take what they had done creatively and expand it into all these other lines of business fairly quickly. And uh, look, everywhere we put the brand, whether it's, you know, repackaged content on Hulu and Amazon Prime Video, whether it's consumer products on the shelves at Walmart, whether it's a TV show on Nickelodeon, whether it's a game in the app stores, like it crushes. And, you know, in part, that's because he's very popular. In fact, I refer to him as the most popular kid in the world ever. <laughs> and part of that is because of this creative universe. And part of it, obviously, I want to attribute to Pocket Watch for all of the great work that we've done. And it's nice to have a, a home run out the gate. You know, there's still a lot of work to do. We'd like to see the Ryan franchise, if we can call it that, uh, as big as Paw Patrol. It's kind of the benchmark for us. Um, we're on our way. In fact, it's not out yet, but we beat him in the ratings on this past Friday. So, uh, <laughs> the, the Ryan TV show beat it in the ratings. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's uh, was a, it's a big help. It's a great we have a great chemistry. We forged a great partnership with them. They own a piece of our company, right, to align our interests. And I uh, expect that we'll go on to flourish with that one in a long time. That's terrific. And it's a stroke of brilliance, as you mentioned, to build that franchise ecosystem around Ryan. Because I'm sure you've seen this during your time at Maker. At some point, creators grow up and their interests change, right? They don't want to create content so much anymore. And so while Ryan is terrific and can continue to appear on camera and has this passion for play and making videos, if that ever changes, the brand has life beyond one personality. Absolutely. And I think that's a critical component. I think, you know, we haven't announced some things yet, but I think animation's a great tool. Even, you know, if you look at many of the products, uh, you know, they're based on animated versions of Ryan. Red Titan is his superhero alter ego that has an animated character. So yeah, I think that's a big, important part of it. And one of the things I, you know, I talk about a lot is that his parents were smart enough to partner with us <laughs> to the extent that they, what they understood was just because they were good at the franchise world building and YouTube didn't make them good at everything. And that those things that they were good at actually had no friction, right? Anyone can go onto YouTube and upload videos and acquire an audience and make money and never even have to talk to another human being. But all these other areas that they aspired to tackle and conquer, you know, have massive amounts of friction. So whether that's getting a product on the shelf at Walmart or getting a TV show on Nickelodeon or getting, getting an incredible game developer to, to develop a game from your, your IP, like those things have insane amounts of friction. And, you know, that was the thing when I was assembling the leadership of this company, you know, was of paramount importance was, was, is this the team that has the experience, the creativity, the skills to break down those walls, fight a lot of preconceived notions. And I will tell you, there's many people that looked me in the eye and said, Ryan can't work on TV. Right. And like, that's clearly not the case. And so, you know, for me pulling together that team was probably the most critical thing in launching the company. Yeah. And in order to challenge all those assumptions. Yes. That's great. So thinking about the TV show, right, you've, you got it on Nickelodeon, you're going into renewed for season two, you raised your series B, which was led by Viacom. Yes. I'm curious why Viacom as a strategic partner, obviously, you have this terrific relationship and track record with Disney. What was it about Viacom that made them a good fit? Well, I'll start with I have great admiration for both companies. I think, you know, Viacom, was definitely and continues to flex muscle in the digital space 
in a way that was super conducive to that investment where we had also had already started working with them on some things. You know, we had a movie in development at Paramount, we had a, a show in development at Nickelodeon, not, not the show we launched. And, you know, there was some nice momentum there. And there was some, Albie had some great pre-existing relationships within Viacom. You know, Disney was pretty busy at the time too. And I didn't even go in and pitch them, I'll be honest. And I felt like, that momentum with Viacom, their commitment to the space, you know, as embodied through what Kelly Day is doing at Viacom Digital Studios, like all of that really uh, made them look like a fabulous partner. And they have been, I mean, they have been great partners. I can, they've been great investors, great partners, could not be happier. And, you know, it just continues to go really well. They've seemed to have done a complete 180, right? A dramatic digital transformation in the past few years. You think about Viacom a decade ago, it was this old, slow, traditional media company that was embroiled in a lawsuit with YouTube over the right to you know, have copyrighted material on the platform. We all know how that ended. And you look to today and you've got Kelly Day leading digital. You've got the acquisitions of Pluto TV and VidCon and Say, uh, the marketing platform and all these other kind of yeah, investments. And look, who, and look who the president of Nickelodeon is. That's right. Yeah. And it's Brian Robbins. All the way the back from awesomeness. awesomeness. That's right. And, you know. So it makes sense. And, and they've gone from being in, in uh, kind of a behind the pack to, to leading the pack, which I think is a phenomenal case study and an example of a digital transformation that can happen relatively quickly. I think it starts with looking in the mirror. And I think, you know, the thing I admire about Bob Backish the most is that he's honest. And it's like he's not out there saying we're going to put the cat back in the bag and cable television as a business model is going to, you know, go from decline to increase. It starts with the, the let's acknowledge the world as it exists today and is and it's going to be going forward. And let's build into that future as opposed to trying to purely just capture the past. Like now, obviously, they have to manage a soft landing into those cable assets as, as they as a business and and they will and are but that the real commitment to the all the diverse ways that audiences will interact with content i love their commitment to distribution of their brands and content beyond their own channels i think the studio's business is really smart and if you can put you know brands today have to be super versatile they have to be able to live in a lot of different places and i think seeing that commitment out of icom and sharing that same passion for how a brand should work you know, it was another reason I think we just saw really eye to eye as we see it the same exact way, like Pocket Watch is intended to live as a brand everywhere, not just on something that I'm trying to drive people to. And I think that's, you know, look, I've great admiration for them. They're doing doing great things. So obviously, the media and entertainment space changes so rapidly. And that's especially true of children's entertainment right, in the kids space. How do you see the other studios and broadcasters out there responding and other players in the space as well, like toy companies and uh, retailers? Well, certainly, the retailers I, I have been great partners of ours. And I give them, you know, particularly Target and Walmart, you know, especially Walmart, lots and lots of credit for not treating the launch of the initial 12 products of the Ryan's World line as an experiment. They went big. They both did. They went with thousands of stores instead of like, let's try it here or try it there. And I give them insane amounts of credit. I also give a lot of credit to our chief revenue officer, Stone Newman, who had had these 
pre-existing relationships and these trust from those buyers that enabled that to happen. I think we're seeing the writing on the wall from the other perspective, right? So the retailers were seeing how difficult the licensed merchandise business was getting when it was based on TV and film. It was getting harder and harder. And I think they wanted to try something new. And again, timing was kind of perfect. And now I think you'll see a lot of others kind of come in behind us. But I often say, you know, creator plus product doesn't equal franchise. And that there's a lot of work that goes into things like the universe building and all that other stuff that actually plays into it. And then in terms of broadcasters, I mean, I really, you know, look, Brian brought Fred to TV in 2010. This should not be a shock that 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 Brian was the one to in an insane amount of speed. And Albie Hecht, our chief content officer, is, I don't know how he, he pulled it off. Like literally he pitched it in November of, to Brian in November of 18. We shot the pilot in late December, early January. We delivered the pilot in early February. We were greenlit to series and shot this, the first 20 episodes, middle of March to middle of April, premiered April 19th, and were renewed five days later. It's just, it's unprecedented. It's kind of like TV at digital speed, which I think is one of the things that Brian brings to Nickelodeon, uh, no doubt. And obviously seeing we're seeing great success there. I think broadcasters will now take notice. I think it takes something like this, but I think they'll make mistakes. I think people think of Ryan as a YouTube star and that's not correct, right? So I debated someone at Viacom on this actually, where they said, oh, well, YouTube star doesn't work on TV. And I said, Ryan's not a YouTube star. If I came to you and I said, I have a kid's lifestyle retail brand that's going to do X hundreds of millions at retail this year, would that be interesting to you as the basis for some IP in a show? And so it's like, you're not thinking about it the right way. Like all, like this was the exact right moment to launch the TV show because of all the work that, that Ryan, his parents and us have done in the past to get to this point. And I think that's going to be lost on a lot of broadcasters who look just to cash in on some sort of what they perceive as a gold rush. And YouTube was really just the launching pad for developing these characters and IP. It was the right mechanism to reach the audience. Yeah, it's comic books with an audience of a billion. I mean, that's basically, you know, how we look at it. And then when you come to these new platforms, you also have to adapt to each platform. So TV is far different. So the, you know, mystery playdate show is very different from Ryan's YouTube channel, but it embodies some of the themes and, and, and tones around family and things like that, that certainly he's known for, but, you know, it's a TV show. So YouTube has been the largest online destination for kids. So in many ways, it's this tip of the spear, but it's also had its fair share of challenges that we touched on earlier, right? You had Elsa Gate a couple of years ago, Kids Content Adpocalypse. As YouTube. It's every six months. Yeah, right. YouTube is making changes and trying to, uh, trying to do the right thing, right? Trying to make the platform a safer, better place for kids, parents, and advertisers. Do you think what they're doing is working? Is it effective? Are they taking the right steps? Well, I'll start by saying this. Susan has probably the most difficult job on the planet. And she's got a very hard job. YouTube's a tricky place and a tricky partner that has some deep-rooted philosophies around machine-based curation and other things that I don't think they're likely to give up on. And so they compensate 
and they throw a lot of resources at things. Like I actually, in conversations with with some of the folks over on the kids and family team at YouTube, I'm always like, all those when those things happen, those bad things, and then the press attention comes, it's actually good for them because they want more resources to fight the bad people who are trying to do bad things using YouTube, and that gives them more resources, right? So I'm always like, it's not the worst thing for those people who are fighting the good fight inside of YouTube to, to make it the safest place for kids it could possibly be. But have they done enough? No. I mean, I, they, they have so much more to do. And I think they're committed to it. They're doing it. I would say as a partner, YouTube is very, they're a scary partner. You know, I think about this space broadly, and, and obviously the kids and family space has a lot in the on the on the governmental side, right? That that we pay very close attention to, whether those are new revisions to the COPPA bill, or they are uh, new bills that might be introduced, or actually things that are happening in Europe with GDPRK, and like we pay very, very, very close attention to all those things. But here's the thing about governments: they're transparent, they move really slow, and when they do something, they give you safe harbors and a runway to comply. YouTube changes their guidelines on a dime in a complete opaque environment and then expects compliance immediately and retroactively. That is much scarier for me as a business owner than the government. And, you know, it just is what it is. And I think, you know, for us, if that represents, if YouTube really represents sort of that digital first launch pad, I think we will see that as an opportunity, right? So, you know, we're going to be doing some things later in the year that we think, you know, frankly, are some things YouTube has left on the table. So outside of Pocket Watch, you've also invested in and advised a number of early stage companies. What are some of the most common mistakes you witness among startups? It's funny. My favorite is a fear of growth embodied in not wanting to hire fast enough or being too concerned about spending the money you've raised. Like, it's hard as a new entrepreneur to be comfortable spending a lot of money and spending it fast and making mistakes by hiring the wrong people. And to me, it's like, no, you got to do that. Like that is, you just have to deploy, deploy quickly, not be afraid to, to hire the wrong person or make a mistake. And I think when I, when I see reservations in, and I see a lot of companies lose momentum because of that, 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 you know, they might start off with a bang or have a good, you know, sort of spark that sends them in a you know speedily in a certain direction and then they they kind of pull back because they're they're nervous about overspending or nervous about and i'm not saying you shouldn't be conscious of how you spend money but like that that's the whole point like these are investment-based businesses i obviously aspire for my business to be insanely profitable over time but it's not this moment in time because the opportunity is too big and i reinvest all our gross profits back into this business because that is the opportunity and to keep our lead and be the number one in this particular category is, is too important to not deploy every possible resource you can. One other question I love to ask entrepreneurs, because I find that you have to be a bit contrarian like that to be successful, is what is something that you believe that everyone else might think is crazy? That's a great question. Okay, I'll give you, oftentimes you'll hear advice, whether it's VC or whatever, is like, you need to be focused on one thing. I don't really believe that. <laughs> I, and if you look at the way we've grown this business, believe in a diversity of things ranging from lines of businesses to, in our case, IP and creators we work with, right? I, I think that that notion of 
focus and and particularly a tight focus can really make you blind to what you need to do to actually build a successful diversified business. We launched, you know, in our first full year of 2018, we launched, you know, three main lines of business. We'll have seven this year. And it's on plan. It's by design. But, you know, I'm not saying I I have to be focused on one of those lines of business. No, screw that. Focus on all of it. And what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media and entertainment space, what would they be? Star Wars is going to be a disappointment. I hate saying it. I just, I don't know. Why do you think so? I don't know. I just, I, I feel like maybe it's just the hype is too high. There's a little bit coming off of the second one, which I liked, but didn't love. But I do think it's. Is there a little bit of Star Wars fatigue? It feels like some people. I don't think so. I, I, I mean, there's not Marvel fatigue. I mean, you, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's fatigue driven. I think it's it's creative in nature. What else? I do think Disney Plus is going to get off to just an astonishingly successful start, and I think their first year is going to be pretty awesome. And I'm rooting for it. I think it's as a consumer, I'm excited for it, which I, I think a lot of consumers are. And I think there'll be continued consolidation. I really do. I think it's, you know, this embodies itself sometimes in the advice that I try to impart upon my kids in terms of the world they're going to grow up in. But it might be like four companies. You know, it's just it just feels like unless the government steps in, which they seem to refuse to, that the consolidation is going to just continue and it's going to be less and less companies. I mean, looking at Disney, what Disney is now, you know, what's the theatrical market share for Disney in 2020? Like, it's going to be insane. You know, could they get half? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Especially riding on the back of some of these huge sequels and other temple releases. And I think it makes it hard. I mean, it makes it a different environment for smaller startups too, for Mm -hmm. startups. I mean, it's, it, it just, you know, the outcome shouldn't always be, or the aspiration, and I know it's ironic because I did sell two companies to Disney, but that should not necessarily be the aspiration. But, you know, they, the big companies are buying up more and more smaller companies too. And that's where the financial incentives are. That's what's driving that activity. The media space has this kind of tendency to expand and contract, but we, we definitely seem to be in a prolonged contraction phase. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And what does the future hold for you and for Pocket Watch? Well, I'm really excited. We've got a great year ahead of us. Obviously, we're off to a really strong start with a hit TV show and, uh, you know, a consumer products line that continues to gain momentum. And I'd say, you know, what I'm most excited about is the launching of the next uh, two franchises, three actually this year, um, that we're just super, super excited about. And uh, stay tuned for more on those, but starting this summer. So you'll start to see some really big things coming. Now, obviously, you're two years in, so you're right in the thick of managing and growing this rapidly expanding enterprise. But if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? God, I don't know. I wouldn't do anything different. I, I, I love what we're doing here, and we're having fun. And I, I think I'm so passionate about this company and opportunity that I'm not necessarily looking. Although, because I make these little angel investments, I do tend to see some pretty cool things, um, but nothing that, you know, sparks the same passion in me that, uh, that this, that this company does. And I think I would just do this. 
No, that's good to hear. And it's certainly the model of developing IP, building franchises around characters, and using digital as the, the agent to then lead to consumer products and yeah. traditional film, TV, et cetera, is a great blueprint. I just asked the question, one, because it's so fascinating to hear people's responses. And I think that as an entrepreneur, you might be 150% committed to this business. I'm in the same position, but you just can't turn off that part of your brain where you look at something and you're like, I wish this was different. Or if I had the time, I would, I would tinker with this a little bit more. You know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, you see it right and i i just at this moment in time like i nothing is sort of piquing my interest in that type of way where it's sort of sitting in the back of my head where can people find out more about you and more about pocket watch well you can always go to our website pocket.watch nice and short and easy the shortest url you can have for that brand and um yeah i will you know i'm attending some events at the collision conference uh, i'm going to be speaking up in toronto i'm sure there's some other ones coming as well so fantastic well stay tuned it sounds like you've got some big announcements coming up uh bigger creative slate new talent coming aboard other projects later in the year so always exciting to hear what pocket watch is rolling out and chris thanks so much for taking the time to share your experience and perspective on the journey you've been on it's just fascinating to hear more stories from another great entrepreneur so thank you my pleasure thanks for having me james Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.